Revelation chapter 20, and once again we are in our study of this 20th chapter and installment number four on our subject, which is the coming millennial kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's when Jesus comes to rule the world in perfect righteousness. It occurred to me a few weeks ago when we were in the first uh, installment of this message that the subject is just really fantastic. Uh, It's unbelievable. And someone who just came into our services and dropped in uh, in the middle of one of these services would think that we're probably pretty crazy. I mean, we're talking about a world where um, there is no, no, no starvation, there's plenty of food. We're speaking of a world where it's perfect in its climate, there is no disease, there is no pollution, there is no crime. We're talking about a world where animals and people peacefully coexist, where there are, no, there are no predatory animals, a world where there is no war, and on and on and on you go with that. And so you take someone who just comes into one of these services and just sits down and listens to what we're saying, they, they would really think that we're, we're just a bunch of wildly optimistic Pollyannas. Well, we are very much optimistic about what's going to happen We do believe that Christ is coming, and it's not wild optimism based on nothing. It's based upon the infallible, inerrant Word of God, and that's why we believe it. The golden age is coming to this earth, but we also know it's going to get much, much worse than it is now. Before a golden age can exist upon the earth, the curse of sin has to be lifted or at least very strictly or severely or very severely restricted and it has to be mitigated in some way, and it will be. For the, for the first 1,000 years of Christ's kingdom, uh, sin is going to be very much repressed. And then after that 1,000 years is over, the curse of sin will be entirely lifted from the world. Now, during that 1,000-year period, there will still be death because there's still sin. And where there's sin, there is death. Uh, people will live to be much, much older, but there are people that will die. And then when God finally does away with sin, death goes out with it. Now, for those of us, or those of you that might be just joining us in this, we're, we're gone, we've gone through 19 chapters and 33 months of study to get us to this point, and we're getting close to the end now. And when we get to the end, the end of Revelation coincides with the end of the world, and then we'll be talking about eternity, and we'll talk about heaven, the realm of eternal life in heaven. So our scripture for now, though, is chapter 20 and verses 4 through 6, and these speak of the millennial kingdom of Christ. Verse number 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years." But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now let me just give you a few things to sort of catch you up just a little bit. And most of what I needed to say, I've already said in the, in the introduction before we read. But the first part of this message is about the resplendent millennium. It, it, it was about the, the golden age that's coming, and it begins when Christ comes and establishes kingdom upon the earth. 
Now, there's a prophecy in Habakkuk that I've been using as sort of the theme for the messages. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. And that verse is an explanation for much of what we've already covered in these, in these few weeks in this study. The glory of the Lord is going to change this world to be a much different place. The earth is going to change geographically and topographically, and it will accommodate all of the good things that Christ has for us in that kingdom. Now, the entire earth then will be habitable. There will be no deserts and there are no polar ice caps. There will be no mountain ranges that are too rugged for people to live in. God is going to change all of that through a series of violent judgments that takes place during the tribulation. And when he's through, the entire earth will be habitable. Now, there are going to be lots of people on this earth because folks will live to be much, much longer than they do now. And so without disease and without hunger, without war and without crime, without harmful solar radiation, people will live longer. So there will be a population explosion over the entire earth. But we don't need to worry about that because God is making accommodations for that. As I said, he's making the, he will make the whole earth habitable and there will be plenty of food for everyone. And then in addition to that, the animal kingdom will be at peace and with peace with each other and peace with man. And I would suppose that that would also cause a, an explosion in the animal kingdom as well as far as their population is concerned. But you won't have to worry about lions and tigers in your front yard. And those of you that like to keep cats, you'll be able to keep really big ones in that time. They're not going to bother you. So the world is going to be a much, much different place. And you can call us crazy if you want, but that's God's plan. He intends to restore the world like it was in the pristine days of creation. Well, moving on from there, we we discuss the reigning members of the kingdom. The earth is going to have a completely new set of administrators. Now, we notice this in the beginning of verse number 4. John says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. So we talked about the thrones of governing during the millennium. The government of the kingdom will have shared ruling authority. I'll explain that a little bit more in just a minute. But, but Christ is the supreme ruler, and he delegates authority to those that will help him rule in the kingdom. And the administrators in the kingdom are going to be born-again people of God. Born-again people that come from all the different ages. So who is going to assist and who will sit on thrones? Well, there will be believers before the time of Christ that will reign. Those are believers in Christ from the Old Testament period. Uh, Primarily, they are Jews uh, because before God, or before before, uh, Christ rather, the the God dealt mostly with Israel, not with too many Gentile people, and so there weren't very many Gentile people that were saved. And included in that group will also be pre-Israelites. And there I'm talking about Adam and Enoch, Noah, Abraham. Anybody that believed in God prior to the coming of Christ, believed in true Jehovah God, will be a part of the ruling members of the kingdom. The apostles will reign. Christ told the apostles that they would sit on 12 thrones judging the uh, tribes of Israel. Church-age Christians will reign. And those are people like you and me. 
people that believed in Christ after he began his church. So you go all the way back to the time that Christ was here and he began the church, all of those people up to the time that we're living now and then up to the time of the rapture, they're also going to reign with Christ. And then fourthly, tribulation martyrs will reign. Now those we find in the text here. The fourth group we find in the text. It says, And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So those are the groups that are going to reign during the millennial kingdom. So those are governing, people that are governing. Well, let's talk a little bit about the government. What is the government like in the millennial kingdom? Well, it is a theocratic government. A theocratic government. The government of the millennium is theocratic. And what that means is God rules. Very simply, God rules. And to be a little bit more specific about that, it is a theocratic monarchy. Christ is the one who rules in a monarchy. Now, as I said, he's going to delegate authority to others but uh, not in the sense that you think of like a constitutional monarchy. In in this monarchy, Christ has absolute power, and so if you want to get it a little bit more refined, it is an absolute theocratic monarchy. I don't have time to give you a civics lesson tonight, so if you don't understand all those those terms, then, then look those up, and that'll help you a little bit, maybe to understand it better. But Christ has the ruling authority over the entire world. So what we're going to talk about this evening is the global aspect of the kingdom. Christ is going to rule the entire world. Not one inch of the entire world will not be under Christ's authority. Now, in a spiritual sense, Christ is the ruling authority over the world right now. Of course he is. It's it's God who directs everything that happens in the world. Everything that comes to pass comes about because of God's will. He orchestrates everything according to his plan. But in the physical sense, Christ will have the ruling authority upon the earth. And that's not a secret. I mean, this is not new information that anybody's finding out. This is revealed in the Old Testament in hundreds of different prophecies. Now, one of my favorites is one that we read during Christmas time, especially. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, that says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And lest we think that Christ is coming to rule only over Israel... We also have a prophecy in Zechariah 14 that says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. And then, of course, our theme in Habakkuk says the same, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in the book of Daniel, a scripture that I read back at the beginning of this little mini-series on the millennium, Uh, Daniel interpreted a dream of Nebuchadnezzar where he saw this great image, and the image represented all of the world's kingdom. And then Daniel says there was a stone that came, uh, that was cut without hands, that came down from that mountain and smote that image and broke it into pieces, and then that stone became a mountain that filled the earth. Well, that was a prophecy about Christ. 
He will crush all human governments, and then his throne will be established over the entire earth. This is what we see in the 19th chapter in the 15th verse. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So those are just a few of the passages that we find in the Old Testament that talk about the the kingdom and how Christ is going to rule the entire earth. All nations will serve him. And if you want to read one of the Psalms that has a a lot to say about this, the extensive rule of Christ in a physical kingdom, then you you can look at Psalm 72. Let me just give you a few verses from there. Uh, Psalm 72 verse 8 says, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. The 11th verse, Yea, and all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Then the 17th verse, His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. So this kingdom is a global kingdom. An important feature of this global kingdom is that it's going to be primarily Jewish in nature. The kingdom is established upon the throne of David. And when the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary, he said, He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And so the kingdom starts with Israel, then it extends over the whole earth. Now, that's a promise that God made to Israel on many different occasions. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know that how, how Israel sinned greatly against God. Oftentimes, they walked away from God, and they walked away from God's blessings. And you know the kingdom was split, divided into two parts. There was a northern kingdom, and, and that consisted of ten tribes. And then there are two tribes in the southern kingdom. And before all of that was over, both of them had been taken into captivity. The temple was destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem were broken down. And God's judgment came upon Israel because of their wickedness. But God continued to send prophets to them, and they said that the kingdom would be restored. Well, it's never yet been restored. It hasn't been fulfilled yet, but you can rest assured that God has made the promise, and it will come to pass. God never lies. So it's a promise that he made and an oft-repeated promise. And if you believe God, you have to believe that it's true. Now, this is where we have a great deal of difficulty with those who believe that the kingdom is only a spiritual kingdom. We've talked a little bit this morning about Harold Camping and his, his wild ideas about when Christ was going to come. Well, he was somebody that believed that we were actually living in the kingdom age now. And then when Christ came, that would pretty much end it all. But we cannot believe in a spiritual kingdom. We believe in a, uh, there will be a literal fulfillment of this, that there will be uh, a a restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Now, those people don't believe that. They don't believe that any, uh, any of those promises that are in the Old Testament, those are not for the nation of Israel. Israel will not have a part in ruling in a physical millennial kingdom. Instead, they believe all of those promises have been transferred to the church, and the church has become spiritual Israel. But I'm sorry, I can't get that out of all these many scriptures that we read in the Bible. If that's true, then, or if the Bible is true, and if God is true, there must be a kingdom for Israel. 
David's throne was promised to be an everlasting throne. And the New Testament is meticulous about this and and showing us how that Christ is the successor to sit on David's throne. And it's impossible for you not to make a mess out of the Bible just by cutting it up and, and, and just chewing it all up, trying to get rid of this kingdom that's coming. So we, we believe this is going to happen. And folks, this is why that I believe, I don't know where you stand politically on certain issues, but this is why I believe the United States must stay on Israel's side. We don't want to be caught dead opposing Israel because caught dead is what we will be if we do. We don't want to oppose God's chosen nation. Now, if the Bible is true, and of course I believe that it is, if America is still here when Christ returns, this is what will happen. We will oppose Israel. All of the nations of the world are going to be in opposition. And this is why Christ has to come and rule with a rod of iron. He's going to come and he's going to crush all of these governments. He will be that mountain that fills the entire earth. And so his kingdom is coming, and when it does, it will be primarily Jewish in nature. Now, let me show you some things about this. Uh, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 11. And the Apostle Paul uh, tells us here in the New Testament about Israel's salvation. See, God does not intend to leave his chosen people indefinitely in unbelief. Now, the Old Testament says the kingdom will restore, be restored, but it's not going to be restored with secular Jews. And it's not going to be restored with Orthodox Jews that still, still think uh, they can fabricate all of these different kinds of laws and, and, and make up all this stuff that's not actually in the Bible and believe that's where their salvation comes from. So the Jews are in rejection of Christ now, just like they were 2,000 years ago. But that will change. The natural progression of the Jewish faith should have been that when Christ came, they recognized him as the Messiah, and then all Jews became Christian Jews. But that's not what happened. Now, I know the argument, there is an argument over this. Who crucified Jesus? Was it the Romans or was it the Jews? Well, the Romans were certainly instrumental in it, but I think the Bible is clear about this, that primarily it was the rejection of the Jews that caused Christ to be crucified. Jesus had that in mind, and so did the apostles. John said, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And when Jesus commissioned the 12 disciples, we, we apostles, we read it this morning, he told them not to go to the cities of the Gentiles. He said, don't go to Samaria. He said, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There was a woman that was a Canaanite, and she came to Jesus, and she asked Jesus to cast the devil out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When Paul went on his missionary journeys, uh, he, he went first to the Jews. You always found him in Jewish synagogues speaking to the Jews first. When he and Barnabas went to Antioch of Pisidia, they, they talked to them. They went into the Jewish synagogue. Paul preached a powerful message about the history of Israel and about the coming of Christ. And you can read all about that in Acts chapter 13. And the Jews became angry about it, and they blasphemed, and they contradicted him. Now, here's what the Scripture says in Acts 13. You, you, you continue holding on there to Romans 11 for just a minute. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing he put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles." For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for the salvation unto the ends of the earth. 
So if you want to ask the question, who crucified Jesus? Then I think the Bible makes it very clear. It was the Jews. Peter said that on the day of Pentecost. He preached to the Jewish crowd, and he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Stephen said it to the Jewish Sanhedrin. He said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers, who hath received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. So the Romans were instrumental in the crucifixion, because they were the party that was in power, the nation in power. But the Jews are the ones who crucified him. It was a Jew that betrayed him. It was the Jewish high priest that accused him. It was the Jewish court that hired witnesses against him. It was the Jewish mob that led him to Pilate and demanded his crucifixion. And it was the Jews that said, let Barabbas go free and crucify Jesus. Now today, the Jews don't want to be identified with that. But the Bible is very clear about it. Israel rejected her Messiah and demanded his death. And for all of that, folks, for all that they did, they are still God's chosen nation. Now, the majority of them died in unbelief. They still continue to die in unbelief. They are still in rejection, and they will suffer the eternal consequences of that rejection. But that doesn't mean that we're any better off than they are. Gentiles are not any better off because the Bible says that Christ came to die for the sins of the world. We're still guilty in in that sense. Our sins are still responsible for Christ going to the cross. But when it comes to the kingdom, God made this promise. God is gracious to his people, and he does intend to bring them back in the millennial kingdom. And then Israel will do what they're supposed to do, we're supposed to do 2,000 years ago. So Israel will turn to Christ. They will believe, and they will be saved. Now, we look here at Romans chapter 11, and Paul tells us when this will happen. And you'll notice that in the beginning of the chapter, Paul says there's always been a believing remnant in Israel. I mean, even though the Jews are in rejection, there has still been a part of the Jews. There have been some who have believed in Christ. Now, he says in verse number 1, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Watch ye not what the Scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he, which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Now, the election there speaks of the remnant of believers. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. Now, I wish I had time to spend with you on verses 6 and 8, because that is rich where it tells us that God elects his people. It's not based upon foreseen faith, but it's based upon his grace. And you can't explain that away like many people do. 
But that's not my subject tonight. The opening verses show us that God has always preserved some in Israel as a remnant of believers. And Paul gives the example here of Elijah. He thought he was the only one left. And so he complained to God, I'm the only one left, the only one that believes. And God told him there are 7,000 more that have not bowed their knee to the image of Baal. So he says there is a remnant of believers, those that truly worship God. But Israel, for the most part, has continued to be in unbelief. And that unbelief will continue, as Paul shows us here, until a specific time, and then it will stop. Now, this is a great chapter, and we don't have time to cover it all. So we'll skip down a few verses and go down to verse number 25. And here Paul looks toward the future. He says in verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, or you want to put it this way, part of Israel has been blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. So why is Israel blinded to the gospel today? You can't get around this. The scripture says this is by God's design. He says they will remain in blindness until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Now that means that God is working with Gentile nations now. It means that God has a people in those nations to save. He has elected some from all of these different nations. And the Jews will remain blind to the gospel until God brings the elect Gentiles to salvation. Well, when will that be? Well, he must be talking about the time of the rapture. Because in the present age, in the church age, this is primarily a time for the Gentiles. The church is generally Gentile. And there aren't many Jews that are being saved now. But when the church is taken out of the world, the tribulation begins and then starts this great turning of the Jews towards Christ. 12,000 from each tribe are saved and sealed. 144,000 Jews receive salvation and they become witnesses to the nation, to their nation, and to the world. And then if you go over to chapter 12, you find there God's special protection upon the nation of Israel. During the tribulation time, Satan will be cast down to the earth, and what he will try to do is try to prevent Israel from getting into the millennial kingdom. And God will put special protection on Israel and save them from that, and so they can go into the kingdom. Now, if Satan were to destroy Israel before they could get into the kingdom, then what God promised will not happen. And if that doesn't happen, then God can't be God. What happens is Satan wins. So anybody who says, well, there is no future kingdom upon the earth, and they might as well hand the victory to Satan right now because God has not kept his promise, if that's true. But the promise is not going to be broken. Paul says the blindness of Israel is a temporary condition. And so when the fullness of the Gentiles is over, this is then what he says will happen. Verse number 26, And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come, a, uh, come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Paul says, as it is written, God is going to send a deliverer out of Zion and he will save Israel, he will rescue them from their unbelief, and he will take away their sins. Where is that written? That's Isaiah chapter 59. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from the transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. 
As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. So God put this into the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, that there is a covenant that he will honor. Now Paul repeats that information. This is God's covenant to Israel. He will restore the kingdom. So God starts their salvation during the time of tribulation, and that time is a time of purging for Israel. Now what happens here is that all unbelieving Jews will be killed during the tribulation time, and all the rest of the believing Jews will enter into the millennial kingdom. And that's what he means when he says, then all Israel shall be saved. All of them that are in the millennial kingdom will be saved Jews. Now we go down to verse number 29, and Paul says, For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. That means when God makes a promise, he'll not take it back. God said that he would make a nation out of Israel again. Uh, Israel will rule the world. He said Christ is going to sit on David's throne and has been established forever, and God never takes those things back. God never reneges on the promise. So Israel is still God's chosen nation, and they will become the people and the kingdom that God always intended they would be. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that America is God's chosen nation. We're not. Israel is God's chosen nation. Now, now let me make this clear to you as well. The land that God gave to Israel is their land. Now, you know, I know, there's a great fight taking place over there right now. Uh, The Palestinians want control of certain parts of Israel. And it's amazing. You go to Israel today, and right between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, I mean, these are two cities, you know, they're right next together. And I have a picture of this. There's a wall that's built there that, that separates the Jews from the Palestinians going into Bethlehem. And this wall snakes throughout the the neighborhoods of, of Jerusalem, separating the Jews from the Palestinians. And then, uh, in the land of Israel, if you want to go to Jericho, the next picture is what you face when you try to enter there. I mean, there's a long line of people trying to get in, guard towers set up there. It is a war-torn land of strife. But make no mistake about this, all of Israel is their land. And again, I don't know where you stand on the Palestinian conflict, but God's going to give all that land back to Israel. They're going to control every bit of it, and there will be no mosque on the Temple Mount. You can can trust me on that one. Now let me turn to one more scripture. Uh, This is in the book of Acts, chapter 15. And this is the uh, right after the arguments uh, that were made about circumcising the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas had returned from their missionary trips, and, and they went to see the apostles and the church in Jerusalem, and they, and they told them about how God had saved Gentiles. And, and so when that argument was over, James, who is, who is the brother of Jesus, and he had become the leader of the Jerusalem church, he rose to speak. And in the 13th verse of Acts 15, it says, And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. 
Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. So James says the prophets are agreed about this. When God has taken from the Gentiles a people for his name, and that is another statement about God's election. And he says when that is done, then Christ will return and he will build again the tabernacle of David that's fallen down. Now that means that the house of David, the throne of David, will be restored and Christ will sit on that throne. And so then, the entire world, both Jews and Gentiles, will worship God in the kingdom. Now, the global kingdom has Jerusalem as its capital. And this cannot be interpreted any other way than that the kingdom is Jewish in character. Now, Gentiles, of course, we're blessed that we've been brought into the covenant of God, brought into the covenant of grace. We're blessed to receive salvation in Christ. But God is not going to forget his original chosen nation. That's the global aspect of the kingdom. Jesus will rule supreme over the entire earth. That's what we can expect when he comes again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time we spent in your word tonight. And Lord, we we're, we're like, like to think about these things, about the kingdom that's coming and how the saints of God will rule with you. Lord, help us that we might recognize that Jesus is king over the entire earth right now. And as your people, we need to be in subjection to you every moment of our lives. Help us to give that message that you are returning. A kingdom is coming. And Lord, we pray that you would turn hearts to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray.